Now, in our journey through Mark's Gospel, we come to another Markan sandwich. Remember what one of those are? It's a bit close to lunchtime, isn't it? We're all getting a bit hungry. A Markan sandwich. That's when Mark tells a story, and then he interrupts it with another story and finishes it off. Uh, we've seen a couple of those so far. Back in Mark 3, Jesus' family came down from Nazareth to Capernaum for a family intervention because Jesus, they thought, was out of his mind and let's set him straight. But that story was interrupted by the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. And then Mark finishes the story with the family intervention. A few weeks ago, we saw another one of these Mark and sandwiches with Jairus coming to Jesus and saying, my daughter is at her death's door, please come. But then that story is interrupted by Jesus healing a sick woman. And then the story continues, but by this time Jairus' daughter is dead, but God's not finished, and there's this mighty miracle. And so today we come to another one of these literary techniques. And Jesus sends the disciples out in pairs, but he interrupts the story by the death of John the Baptist. And then he comes back to finish the story of the sending out of the pairs. Mark does this, this Mark and Sandwich technique, for dramatic effect, to increase our interest and attention in the story. But he also does it because he wants these stories to be heard in pairs. Each story impacts the other story, and so it's when we see the two stories together that they make more sense. Now, because there's a lot in both stories, this week we're going to look at the bread, the sending out. Next week we'll look at the filling, which is John the Baptist. And to help organise our thoughts this morning, we're going to look at three different aspects of mission, of being sent out. We're going to look at preparing for mission, doing mission, and the consequences of mission. Now, when I use the word mission, I mean intentionally telling others the good news about Jesus. Intentionally telling others the good news about Jesus. Geographically, we can do this across the dinner table, across the neighbour's fence, or across borders. Uh, Many of us in our mind, when we think mission, think overseas mission. But of course, mission can be local as well. But mission is a little bit bigger than that, local as well as overseas. So what does this passage tell us about preparing for mission? Let's dive in in chapter 6, verse 6. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him, He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Now up until now, Jesus had spent much of his time around the lakeside town of Capernaum. He'd now travelled up into the hills and had just been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. However, instead of going back to sort of home base, back to Capernaum, he decides to stay and keep sharing the good news from village to village. And it's good to remind ourselves what the core of his message is because this is what the disciples will soon be doing. And so in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus went about proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So this is what Jesus was proclaiming and expanding in the villages around Nazareth. And this, of course, is what the disciples will be doing when they are sent out. So preparing for mission, 
what does this passage tell us? Well, the first thing this passage emphasises is that to prepare for mission, you need to spend time with Jesus. Whether you share Jesus with someone at work or whether you are preparing to go to another country, spending time with Jesus is a priority. Now we see this in verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two. Calling the disciples, the twelve, to him. Now the twelve had already been with him since chapter 3, and some have been there since chapter 1, the four fishermen and the like. But this phrase, calling the twelve to him, emphasises afresh that need to spend time with Jesus. It's our number one priority. Now, how do we do this? Well, there is a number of ways, like in our devotional times, Bible reading and prayer. We can also do this when we pray on the go. I know a number of Christians during the day, something will pop into their head and they'll just pray to Jesus and and lift it up to him. They have this sort of running conversation during the day. That's wonderful. Other people in the car put on worship music and sing along. Time with Jesus. Other people, they'll go for a walk. And for them just walking outside, especially in central, they just feel close to Jesus. Now we're all wired a little bit different and each of us as we mature in our faith need to work out those ways where we connect easiest to Jesus. And we do. And that's wonderful preparation, the most important preparation for sharing Jesus with others. But we don't just do this one-on-one with Jesus, we also do this with other Christians. So we spend time with Jesus as a group, corporately, like exactly what you're doing now. And we come to church to worship Jesus, to spend time with him, but we don't do it alone, we do it with each other so that we can rub shoulders with people, so we can join together and sing in tune when we sing praises to God instead of maybe out of tune in the car and all those sort of things. Small groups, Bible studies, spending time with Jesus with others, Prayer partners, maybe you pray with your spouse or or a good friend once a week or whenever. Spending time with Jesus by ourselves but also with others is the best preparation for sharing Jesus with others. Now in this we must be on our guard. Our Western culture regards much, if not all of what I've just said, as a waste of time. In the drive for efficiency and productivity, hanging out with Jesus just isn't on our culture's radar. So, we have a tendency to let our time with Christ slip, even fall away. Or, our approach tends to be a tick-box attitude. Tick-box attitude. Read the Bible, at least read a chapter, tick the box. Prayed for the kids, tick the box. Been to church, tick the box. Now I can do the important and fun stuff. And that attitude kind of creeps in. And we need to guard against this. For not hanging out with Jesus is the best way to stunt our spiritual growth and makes us ineffective when we try and serve him, especially if we serve him in mission. Learn to linger. Now, linger, this word is a word that's made a really important impact on my devotional times over the last few months. Trying to think, well, what does it mean to linger? I can be a bit of a tip box sort of person when it comes to my devotions. So I've even used the phrase, how can I waste time with Jesus? 
Now, of course, you never waste time with Jesus, but from the world's point of view, that's what we're doing. Even coming to church from the world's point of view is, why would you waste your time doing that when you could be sleeping in, having a leisurely brunch, doing the kids' sports? Learn to linger with Jesus. As we do, we do it for its own sake, for its own delight. But we also do it so we can be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, so we can share our faith with confidence and so that we can please the Father heart of God. So the best and most important preparation for sharing the good news is to spend time with Jesus. And the second thing we learn about this passage is to serve with others. Jesus sent them out in pairs. There are no lone rangers in mission. Yes, there are times when we share our faith one-on-one. Maybe with our adult daughter. Maybe our adult daughter's going through a tough time and we sit down and we have a coffee and we're chatting and we listen and then, and then we say, well, have you thought about inviting Christ into this situation? Have you thought about you know, praying about it? Yeah, one-on-one. It may be in the bowling club and someone says, oh, here you go to that funny church. Who would waste your time with that? What about that? And then you just say, well, and you start sharing about Jesus. So we do share our faith one-on-one, but it can be hard work. It can be draining, and we need that support from others, which is why Jesus sent people out in pairs, pairs or a team. I mean, Alpha is a great example, isn't it? A team is set up and prepares and runs the program. Often one person fronts the evenings, but it's a team that makes it happen. They serve the meals, they run the small groups, they help organise the weekend. And on top of that, the church prays, the church invites people to Alpha, and there's a casserole here and a steam pudding there, and the team is drawn together because it's a church-wide mission. And so, when we prepare for mission, the most important thing is to hang out with Jesus. And when we prepare for mission, it's build a team. Don't be a lone ranger. Work together. Next, what's the next question? What does this passage tell us about doing mission? Well, again, a couple of things. And one of the important things is that our core message is found in this passage. And the core message is to repent. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. So, once a pair of disciples arrive at a village, they are to call people to repent. Now remember, to repent is to change your direction. So, you're going north, and to repent is to turn around and go south. Or you're climbing up, and to repent is turn around and come down. A complete change in direction. So before we met Jesus, we were in charge of our lives. We made our own decisions based on what suited us. We were Lord of our own lives. We used the image of driving a car. We had the steering wheel and we weren't going to let anyone else drive. But repenting means asking Jesus to take over as Lord. Now we make decisions based on his guidance and with his best interests in mind. We're no longer in the driving seat. We're in the passenger seat. So that's one aspect of repentance. But it's not the only one. The other aspect to repentance is to turn away from sin, from destructive patterns of behaviour that creep into our lives, where we say, no more. With God's help, I turn away from this, never to revisit again. 
Now, sometimes this is a a once-only repentance. So it may be that a father struggles with being an over-the-top disciplinarian with his children. And we're talking way beyond good parenting. We're talking verging on abuse. However, this father becomes a Christian and he repents. He changes direction. And overnight, his wife and children are amazed and extremely grateful as he turns away from his previous abusive behaviour. Repentance. Other times, we need to repent more than once. Those patterns are really, destructive patterns are really ingrained. And so another father in a similar situation may also become a Christian and repent. He has to do it more than once. It's a process. And so the wife and family notice a change straight away, but there are times when he slips back into being over the top, being disciplinarian. And so he has to check himself and say, sorry, Lord, I repent and apologise to the children. But it's a work in progress. Repentance. Asking Jesus to be Lord of your life and then recognising and turning away from sin, those destructive patterns that creep into our lives. Well, the disciples learnt this and got it right, and that's that example from Acts chapter 2. And this is an example of the disciples getting it right. It's Pentecost. They spill out from the upper room. They're speaking in tongues. A crowd gathers. What's this we can hear? Our language, the word of God in our own language. Peter gets up and basically says, the Christ that you crucified is actually the Son of God and who's raised from the dead. And then this is what happens, Acts 2.36. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. So the core message, their core message, our core message, repent, turn to Jesus. He will transform you and your lives. And the next thing, our core message, doing mission, the next thing this passage tells us about is acts of kindness alongside the call to repent are acts of kindness. For the disciples, it was to heal the sick and cast out demons. Aren't they tremendous acts of kindness? And it's the same for us today. And though praying for the sick and confronting demons in Jesus' name has its place, our acts of kindness tend to be less dramatic. In countless thoughtful ways, we look to bless others. As individuals, we may drop a meal around to our neighbour who has a sick child. Or as a church, we put on two-course Tuesday as a community meal. Acts of kindness. We, as an individual, may drive an elderly acquaintance to a medical appointment. Or we may get a few of the lads together to cut some firewood and deliver it to someone whose house is cold. Acts of kindness. Sharing about Jesus and acts of kindness go hand in hand. Now, often churches tend to err on one side or the other. So you'll get some churches that are all about calling people to repent, but there's not too many acts of kindness. Then you get other churches, it's all about acts of kindness and community work, but they actually never tell people about Jesus. And this passage reminds us we need both. Lead with acts of kindness, follow up with telling the good news about Jesus. Or you can do it the other way around as long as they are both together. So, 
preparing for mission, hanging out with Jesus, setting up a team. Doing mission, our call message is repentance alongside act of kindness. And that brings us to the consequences of mission. Success. What does success look like? Now, in this passage, there is no direct mention of success. Uh, In Mark 6.30, which is the second piece of bread in the sandwich, it's very brief. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to them all they had done and taught. So really that's quite neutral, isn't it? From that one verse, we can't tell how the disciples got on. However, in Luke 10.17, there isn't a good example of what happened when the disciples were sent out and came back and reported to Jesus. In Luke 10.17, the background is after sending out the 12, Jesus decides to up the training and he sends out six times as many. Luke 10 verse 17. And this is the 72 returning back. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So, what does success look like? The disciples were filled with joy. I don't know if you've ever experienced, I have. I wish I'd experienced more. The times where I have stepped out and shared with someone, either someone I've known or the odd time even just someone I've met on on a plane or something, and I've shared about Jesus. And you know, no matter how the conversation goes, there's always a spring in my step afterwards. There's always that joy of, well, Lord, it's in your hands. I've been obedient. Leave it with you. Don't deprive yourself of that joy of stepping out and sharing Jesus. And the disciples were also amazed that the demons, even the powers of evil, submitted to them, which is a reminder that, well, even though we face odds, Christ wins through. So that's what success looks like. And we just had a look at success with Peter at Pentecost. He called the people to repent, and 3,000 people came to the Lord. But it's not like this every time, is there? I mean, it would be awesome if it was, but that's not how it goes. Because even though the disciples were to go out looking for success, they needed to be prepared for rejection, just like they'd seen with Jesus at Nazareth. And this passage does tell the disciples about rejection and what to do about it. So verse 11, And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So notice that there are two ways the disciples and their message could be rejected. One is they're not welcomed, and the second thing is they might not be listened to. Now Jesus was sending the disciples into an area where the villages were relatively close, hence the instructions to travel light. But once in a village, they were to rely on the Near Eastern custom of hospitality. In Bible days, any traveller could take themselves to the village square or where there was often a well or or a gathering place. And it was custom that in the early evening, late afternoon, early evening, someone, one of the locals, would welcome the visitor in for the night. And that's what good villages and towns did. So a pair of disciples would arrive in a village and they would start sharing the gospel. It might be they chat to a woman on her way to the well or to a blacksmith who's sharpening a farming implement. Start a conversation. Or they might go to the village square and start preaching. 
And after they'd finished preaching, anoint a few of the sick and cast out demons. They'd do what they'd seen Jesus do. However, if no one listened, or if they weren't invited in that evening to stay, which would be very rude of the village to do, they were to leave the village and shake the dust off their feet. Now what does this dust shaking act mean? Well, it's probably associated with the habit of many Jews in those days who did exactly this. When a devout Jew would travel outside Israel into a pagan or a Gentile land, when they returned at the border, they would shake the dust off their shoes as a symbolic act that they had been in a place that did not know God, had rejected God, and now they were coming to a place where God was honoured. And so for the disciples and peers to do this into a Jewish village was a very powerful act showing them that as they had rejected the message about Jesus, they were rejecting God himself. So it was a very powerful symbolic act. And so what does this passage tell us about the consequences of mission? Well, there will be times when there is success and it will fill us with joy and we'll be amazed at what God does. But there will be times when the message, or even us as a messenger, are rejected. And that's okay. Jesus was. He's told us it will happen, and he will help us. Now, often at this stage of my sermon, I turn to application, what we can put into practice, the take-homes. But you may have noticed that I've threaded those all the way through the message. And so I've given you all sorts of take-homes. Spend time with Jesus. Get in together as a team. You know, work together. A reminder that our core message is a repentance and a call to Jesus and that acts of kindness are very, very important as we share Jesus. So I thought, well, I'll finish on a high note, a real positive aspect of the gospel, but I struggled during this week. I really did. There was this shadow that kind of started last week as I was preaching on the rejection of Jesus. That really impacted, yeah, it just impacted me last week to see that afresh. And this week... It was that whole thing of John the Baptist and what happened to him. And that shadow got darker during the week. And I'm thinking, Lord, how am I going to finish this message on a real high note when I've got this shadow? And I was thinking, well, what's John the Baptist's core message? What's the link between these three? Well, it's the messages, isn't it? What was John the Baptist's core message? Repent. The Messiah is near. And even though we go forward a little bit, If you remember the story of John the Baptist, why was he in prison? Because he told the king to repent. You're an adulteress. You've married your sister-in-law. Repent. Got him thrown in prison. Why did he die? Because that sister-in-law, the queen, was so fed up she chopped his head off. Repent. And we think of Jesus. What's his core message? Well, we've been reminded that it is to repent. I am the Messiah. And what happened to him? Rejected at home? Why did they put him on the cross? Because he said, repent, I am the only way. And what's our call message? Maybe we should change it. God loves everyone, no matter what you do. God is a God of love. Knock yourself out. Have you heard that? Actually, I've heard that from some Christians. (laughs) God loves you no matter what. I mean, there's a truth in there, isn't there? There's a good truth in that. But at the end of the day, we're called to say, actually, You need to turn your life to Jesus. You can't keep going the way. Hmm. 
And so I was, Lord, how am I going to put a positive spin on this? <laughs> and so I prayed. And as I prayed, I got this image. It came to mind. And I thought, oh, I'll share this. It's very helpful to me. And this, this image, I felt that I was like a five-year-old lad. And I was in between two adults. And on one side was my father, and he took me by the hand. And on the other side was an uncle, and he took my other hand. Now, as a young five-year-old, these were big guys, especially the uncle. He was a little wild and unkept, smelt a little of honey, had the odd locust wing in his bushy beard. Anyway, looking down with smiles, they said, come with us, keep up. And looking up in awe, (laughs) I was thinking, boy, you guys are tough. You're awesome, but I'll never be able to keep up with you. And though it took two or three steps sometimes for my little legs to keep up, they held my hand, and I did. And their grip was firm, and the adventure begins. You know, and this is what I want to be part of, part of the adventure. John the Baptist on one side, Jesus on the other. What could go wrong? (laughs) Listen, following Jesus, keeping in step with his spirit can be daunting. But it's the right thing to do. It's the only life worth living. Don't believe the lies of our culture that will spin all sorts of stories about having more toys and having more adventures and travel and all the things that our world tells us. The only life worth living is following Jesus. As we hang out with Christ and experience his unconditional love, acceptance and forgiveness... How can we not tell others? As we work together with our sisters and brothers and peers and teams to share the love of God, we learn afresh the joy of following Jesus. At times there'll be pushback. Jesus said there would be. Sometimes our message and even ourselves won't be welcomed. But it's hard to put into words the thrill and the adventure of following Jesus. And we long to hear the words from our Father, our Father God, Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, do you hang out to hear those words? I do. And I hear glimpses of them as I'm reading his word and as I'm praying, there's that sense where God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Brings a thrill to every daughter and to every son of the Most High God. And it's a prayer, I pray that you will hear that personally in your heart. Well done, good and faithful servant. As you step out, and it might be the smallest of steps, act of kindness, can I pray for you? It may be very small, or it may be very bold, but let's together put a smile on the Father heart of God as we obey the great sending out, the great commission. Let's pray.